Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody Some come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer so? today, didn't you? you tried How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? The Black Cat by Edgar Allan Poe For the most wild, yet most homely narrative which I am about to pen, I neither expect nor solicit belief. Mad indeed would I be to expect it, in a case where my very senses reject their own evidence. Yet mad I am not, and very surely do I not dream. But tomorrow I die, and today I would unburden my soul. My immediate purpose is to place before the world, plainly, succinctly, and without comment, a series of mere household events. In their consequences, these events have terrified, have tortured, have destroyed me. Yet I will not attempt to expound them. To me they have presented little but horror. To many they will seem less terrible than baroques. Hereafter, perhaps, some intellect may be found which will reduce my phantasm to the commonplace, some intellect more calm, more logical, and far less excitable than my own, which will perceive in the circumstances I detail with awe nothing more than an ordinary succession of very natural causes and effects. From my infancy, I was noted for the docility and humanity of my disposition, my tenderness of heart was even so conspicuous as to make me the jest of my companions. I was especially fond of animals, and was indulged by my parents with a great variety of pets. With these I spent most of my time, and never was so happy as when feeding and caressing them. This peculiarity of character grew with my growth, and in my manhood I derived from it one of my principal sources of pleasure. To those who have cherished an affection for a faithful and sagacious dog, I need hardly be at the trouble of explaining the nature or the intensity of the gratification thus derivable. There is something in the unselfish and self-sacrificing love of a brute which goes directly to the heart of him who has had frequent occasion to test the paltry friendship and gossamer fidelity of mere man. I married early and was happy to find in my wife a disposition not uncongenial with my own. Observing my partiality for domestic pets, she lost no opportunity of procuring those of the most agreeable kind. We had birds, goldfish, a fine dog, rabbits, a small monkey, and a cat. This latter was a remarkably large and beautiful animal, entirely black and sagacious to an astonishing degree. In speaking of his intelligence, my wife, who at heart was not a little tinctured with superstition, made frequent allusion to the ancient popular notion which regarded all black cats as witches in disguise. Not that she was ever serious upon this point, and I mention the matter at all for no better reason than it happens, just now, to be remembered. Pluto, this was the cat's name, was my favourite pet and playmate. I alone fed him, and he attended me wherever I went about the house. It was even with difficulty that I could prevent him from following me through the streets. Our friendship lasted in this manner for several years, during which my general temperament and character, through the instrumentality of the fiend intemperance, had, I blush to confess it, 
experienced a radical alteration for the worse. I grew day by day more moody, more irritable, more regardless of the feelings of others. I suffered myself to use intemperate language to my wife. At length, I even offered her personal violence. My pets, of course, were made to feel the change in my disposition. I not only neglected, but ill-used them. For Pluto, however, I still retained sufficient regard to restrain me from maltreating him, as I made no scruple of maltreating the rabbits, the monkey, or even the dog, when by accident, or through affection, they came in my way. But my disease grew upon me, for what disease is like alcohol? And at length, even Pluto, who was now becoming old, and consequently somewhat peevish, even Pluto began to experience the effects of my ill temper. One night, returning home much intoxicated from one of my haunts about town, I fancied that the cat avoided my presence. I seized him, when in his fright at my violence he inflicted a slight wound upon my hand with his teeth. The fury of a demon instantly possessed me. I knew myself no longer. My original soul seemed at once to take its flight from my body, and a more than fiendish malevolence, gin-nurtured, thrilled every fibre of my frame. I took from my waistcoat pocket a penknife, opened it, grasped the poor beast by the throat, and deliberately cut one of its eyes from the socket. I blush, I burn, I shudder when I pen the damnable atrocity. When reason returned with the morning, when I had slept off the fumes of the night's debauch, I experienced a sentiment half of horror, half of remorse for the crime of which I had been guilty but it was at best a feeble and equivocal feeling, and the soul remained untouched. I again plunged into excess, and soon drowned in wine all memory of the deed. In the meantime the cat slowly recovered. The socket of the lost eye presented, it is true, a frightful appearance, but he no longer appeared to suffer any pain. He went about the house as usual, but, as might be expected, fled in extreme terror at my approach. I had so much of my old heart left as to be at first grieved by this evident dislike on the part of a creature which had once so loved me. But this feeling soon gave place to irritation, and then came, as if to my final and irrevocable overthrow, the spirit of perverseness. Of this spirit, philosophy takes no account. Yet I am not more sure that my soul lives than I am that perverseness is one of the primitive impulses of the human heart one of the indivisible primary faculties or sentiments which give direction to the character of man, who has not a hundred times found himself committing a vile or a silly action for no other reason than because he knows he should not? Have we not a perpetual inclination in the teeth of our best judgment to violate that which is law merely because we understand it to be such? This spirit of perverseness, I say, came to my final overthrow. It was this unfathomable longing of the soul to vex itself, to offer violence to its own nature, to do wrong for the wrong's sake only, that urged me to continue and finally to consummate the injury I had inflicted upon the unoffending brute. One morning, in cool blood, I slipped a noose about its neck and hung it to the limb of a tree hung it with the tears streaming from my eyes and with the bitterest remorse at my heart, hung it because I knew that it had loved me, 
and because I felt it had given me no reason of offence, hung it because I knew that in so doing I was committing a sin, a deadly sin, that would so jeopardise my immortal soul as to place it, if such a thing were possible, even beyond the reach of the infinite mercy of the most merciful and the most terrible God. On the night of the day on which this cruel deed was done, I was aroused from sleep by the cry of fire. The curtains of my bed were in flames, the whole house was blazing. It was with great difficulty that my wife, a servant and myself, made our escape from the conflagration. The destruction was complete. My entire worldly wealth was swallowed up, and I resigned myself thenceforward to despair. I am above the weakness of seeking to establish a sequence of cause and effect between the disaster and the atrocity, but I am detailing a chain of facts, and wish not to leave even a possible link imperfect. On the day succeeding the fire, I visited the ruins. The walls, with one exception, had fallen in. This exception was found in a compartment wall, not very thick, which stood about the middle of the house, and against which had rested the head of my bed. The plastering had here in great measure resisted the action of the fire, a fact which I attributed to its having been recently spread. About this wall, a dense crowd were collected, and many persons seemed to be examining a particular portion of it with every minute and eager attention. The words strange, singular, and other similar expressions excited my curiosity. I approached and saw, as if graven in bas-relief upon the white surface, the figure of a gigantic cat. The impression was given with an accuracy truly marvellous. There was a rope around the animal's neck. When I first beheld this apparition, for I could scarcely regard it as less, my wonder and my terror were extreme. But at length reflection came to my aid. The cat, I remembered, had been hung in the garden adjacent to the house. Upon the alarm of fire, this garden had been immediately filled by the crowd, by someone of whom the animal must have been cut from the tree and thrown through an open window into my chamber. This had probably been done with the view of arousing me from sleep. The falling of other walls had compressed the victim of my cruelty into the substance of the freshly spread plaster, the lime of which, with the flames and the ammonia from the carcass, had then accomplished the portraiture as I saw it. Although I thus readily accounted to my reason, if not altogether to my conscience, for the startling fact just detailed, it did not the less fail to make a deep impression upon my fancy. For months I could not rid myself of the phantasm of the cat, and during this period there came back into my spirit a half-sentiment that seemed, but was not, remorse. I went so far as to regret the loss of the animal, and to look about me among the vile haunts which I now habitually frequented for another pet of the same species and of somewhat similar appearance with which to supply its place. One night, as I sat, half stupefied in the den of more than infamy, my attention was suddenly drawn to some black object reposing upon the head of one of the immense hogsheads of gin or of rum, which constituted the chief furniture of the apartment. I had been looking steadily at the top of this hogshead for some minutes, and what now caused me surprise was the fact that I had not sooner perceived the object thereupon. 
I approached it and touched it with my hand. It was a black cat, a very large one, fully as large as Pluto, and closely resembling him in every aspect but one. Pluto had not a white hair upon any portion of his body, but this cat had a large, although indefinite, splotch of white covering nearly the whole region of the breast. Upon my touching him, he immediately rose, purred loudly, rubbed against my hand, and appeared delighted with my notice. This, then, was the very creature of which I was in search. I at once offered to purchase it of the landlord, but this person made no claim to it, knew nothing of it, had never seen it before. I continued my caresses, and when I prepared to go home, the animal evinced a disposition to accompany me. I permitted it to do so, occasionally stooping and patting it as I proceeded. When it reached the house, it domesticated itself at once and became immediately a great favourite with my wife. For my own part, I soon found a dislike to it arising within me. This was just the reverse of what I had anticipated, but I know not how or why it was. Its evident fondness for myself rather disgusted and annoyed me. By slow degrees, these feelings of disgust and annoyance rose into the bitterness of hatred. I avoided the creature. A certain sense of shame and the remembrance of my former deed of cruelty preventing me from physically abusing it. I did not for some weeks strike or otherwise violently ill-use it, but gradually, very gradually, I came to look upon it with unutterable loathing and to flee silently from its odious presence as from the breath of a pestilence. What added no doubt to my hatred of the beast was a discovery on the morning after I brought it home that, like Pluto, it also had been deprived of one of its eyes. This circumstance, however, only endeared it to my wife, who, as I have already said, possessed in a high degree that humanity of feeling which had once been my distinguishing trait and the source of many of my simplest and purest pleasures. With my aversion to this cat, however, its partiality for myself seemed to increase. It followed at my footsteps with a pertinacity which it would be difficult to make the reader comprehend. Whenever I sat, it would crouch beneath my chair or spring up upon my knees, covering me with its loathsome caresses. If I rose to walk, it would get between my feet and thus nearly throw me down, or fastening its long and sharp claws on my dress, clamber in this manner to my breast. At such times, although I longed to destroy it with a blow, I was yet withheld from so doing, partly by a memory of my former crime, but chiefly, let me confess it at once, by absolute dread of the beast. This dread was not exactly a dread of physical evil, and yet I should be at a loss how otherwise to define it. I am almost ashamed to own, yes, even in this felon's cell, I am almost ashamed to own that the terror and the horror with which the animal inspired me had been heightened by one of the merest chimeras it would be possible to conceive. My wife had called my attention, more than once, to the character of the mark of white hair of which I have spoken, and which constituted the sole visible difference between the strange beast and the one I had destroyed. The reader will remember that this mark, although large, had been originally very indefinite, but by slow degrees, degrees nearly imperceptible, and which for a long time my reason struggled to reject as fanciful, it had at length assumed a rigorous distinctness of outline. It was now the representation 
of an object that I shudder to name, and for this above all I loathed and dreaded, and would have rid myself of the monster had I dared. It was now, I say, the image of a hideous, of a ghastly thing, of the gallows. Oh, mournful and terrible engine of horror and of crime, of agony and of death. And now was I indeed wretched beyond the wretchedness of mere humanity, and a brute beast whose fellow I had contemptuously destroyed a brute beast to work out for me, for me a man fashioned in the image of the high God, so much of insufferable woe. Alas, neither by day nor by night knew I the blessing of rest any more. During the former, the creature left me no moment alone, and in the latter, I started hourly from dreams of unutterable fear to find the hot breath of the thing upon my face, and its vast weight an incarnate nightmare that I had no power to shake off, incumbent eternally upon my heart. Beneath the pressure of torments such as these, the feeble remnant of the good within me succumbed. Evil thoughts became my sole intimates, the darkest and most evil of thoughts. The moodiness of my usual temper increased the hatred of all things and of all mankind while from the sudden, frequent, and ungovernable outbursts of a fury to which I now blindly abandoned myself, my uncomplaining wife, alas, was the most usual and the most patient of sufferers. One day she accompanied me on some household errand into the cellar of the old building which our poverty compelled us to inhabit. The cat followed me down the steep stairs, and nearly throwing me headlong, exasperated me to madness uplifting an axe and forgetting in my wrath the childish dread which had hitherto stayed my hand, I aimed a blow at the animal which, of course, would have proved instantly fatal had it descended as I wished. But this blow was arrested by the hand of my wife. Goaded by the interference into a rage more than demoniacal, I withdrew my arm from her grasp and buried the axe in her brain. She fell dead upon the spot, without a groan. The hideous murder accomplished, I set myself forthwith, and with entire deliberation to the task of concealing the body, I knew that I couldn't remove it from the house, either by day or by night, without the risk of being observed by the neighbours. Many projects entered my mind. At one period I thought of cutting the corpse into minute fragments and destroying them by fire. At another, I resolved to dig a grave for it in the floor of the cellar. Again, I deliberated about casting it in the well in the yard, about packing it in a box as if merchandise with the usual arrangements, and so getting a porter to take it from the house. Finally, I hit upon what I considered a far better expedient than either of these. I determined to wall it up in the cellar, as the monks of the Middle Ages recorded to have walled up their victims. For a purpose such as this, the cellar was well adapted. Its walls were loosely constructed and had lately been plastered throughout with a rough plaster which the dampness of the atmosphere had prevented from hardening. Moreover, in one of the walls was a projection caused by a false chimney or fireplace that had been filled up and made to resemble the rest of the cellar. I made no doubt that I could readily displace the bricks at this point, insert the corpse, 
and wall the hole up as before, so that no eye could detect anything suspicious. And in this calculation, I was not deceived. By means of a crowbar, I easily dislodged the bricks, and having carefully deposited the body against the inner wall, I propped it in that position, while, with little trouble, I relayed the whole structure as it originally stood. Having procured mortar, sand, and hair with every possible precaution, I prepared a plaster which could not be distinguished from the old, and with this I very carefully went over the new brickwork. But when I had finished, I felt satisfied that all was right. The wall did not present the slightest appearance of having been disturbed. The rubbish on the floor was picked up with the minutest care. I looked around triumphantly and said to myself, Here at least, then, my labour has not been in vain. My next step was to look for the beast which had been the cause of so much wretchedness, for I had at length firmly resolved to put it to death. Had I been able to meet with it, at the moment there could have been no doubt of its fate, but it appeared that the crafty animal had been alarmed at the violence of my previous anger, and forbore to present itself in my present mood. It is impossible to describe, or to imagine, the deep, the blissful sense of relief which the absence of the detested creature occasioned in my bosom. It did not make its appearance during the night, and thus, for one night at least, since its introduction into the house, I soundly and tranquilly slept, I slept, even with the burden of murder upon my soul. The second and the third day passed, and still my tormentor came not. Once again I breathed as a free man. The monster in terror had fled the premises for ever. I should behold it no more. My happiness was supreme. The guilt of my dark deed disturbed me but little. Some few inquiries had been made, but these had been readily answered. Even a search had been instituted, but of course nothing was to be discovered. I looked upon my future felicity as secured. Upon the fourth day of the assassination, a party of the police came very unexpectedly into the house and proceeded again to make rigorous investigation of the premises. Secure, however, in the inscrutability of my place of concealment, I felt no embarrassment, whatever. The officers bade me accompany them in their search. They left no nook or corner unexplored. At length, for the third or fourth time they descended into the cellar, I quivered not a muscle. My heart beat calmly as that of one who slumbers in innocence. I walked the cellar from end to end. I folded my arms upon my bosom and roamed easily to and fro. The police were thoroughly satisfied and prepared to depart. The glee in my heart was too strong to be restrained. I burned to say if but one word by way of triumph and to render doubly sure their assurance of my guiltlessness. Gentlemen, I said at last as the party ascended the steps, I delight to have allayed your suspicions. I wish you all health and a little more courtesy. By the bye, gentlemen, this, um, this is a very well-constructed house. In the rabid desire to say something easily, I scarcely knew what I uttered at all. I may say an excellently well-constructed house. These walls, are you going, gentlemen? These walls are solidly put together. And here, through the mere frenzy of bravado, I rapped heavily with a cane which I held in my hand upon that very portion of the brickwork behind which stood the corpse of the wife of my bosom.
but may God shield and deliver me from the fangs of the arch-fiend. No sooner had the reverberation of my blow sunk into silence than I was answered by a voice from within the tomb, by a cry, at first muffled and broken like the sobbing of a child, and then quickly swelling into one long, loud and continuous scream, utterly anomalous and inhuman, a howl, a wailing shriek, half of horror and half of triumph, such as might have arisen only out of hell, conjointly from the throats of the damned in their agony, and of the demons that exult in the damnation. Of my own thoughts it is folly to speak. Swooning, I staggered to the opposite wall. For one instant the party upon the stairs remained motionless through extremity of terror and of awe. In the next, a dozen stout arms were toiling at the wall. It fell bodily. The corpse, already greatly decayed and clotted with gore, stood erect before the eyes of the spectators. Upon its head, with red extended mouth and solitary eye of fire, sat the hideous beast whose craft had seduced me into murder and whose informing voice had consigned me to the hangman. I had walled the monster up within the tomb. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? That was The Black Cat by Edgar Allan Poe. It was actually a request, that one. I've got another request next time, which is Pigman's Model by Lovecraft. So keep the requests coming in. I mean, there's no shortage of stories, so I can always think of stories to do. You know, if you have ideas, let me have them. Okay, so this is the third story we've done by Poe. We did The Telltale Heart, that was the first one, then we did The Fall of the House of Usher, which is one of my favourites, and then this one, The Black Cat. Poe is probably well known to everybody. He was the probably the founder of the horror genre and probably the detective genre as well. He was an American writer, but you'd be grateful, given my recent ventures, that I decided not to do it with an American accent. Uh, I could have been set anywhere, really. So I, d- I did Telltale Heart with an American accent, I think. Poe was born in 1809 in Boston, and he was only 40 when he died in uh, 1849, yeah, in Baltimore. We talk a little bit about that a bit later on, because it comes up some, of, some, some biography of Poe, inevitably, as with all writers, intrudes into the story. So we set up, the setup of the black cat is that he's a mild, animal-loving sort of chap. When he was a kid, he loved his rabbits and his uh, cats and his dogs and various other things. I've got to say, I just put a note that when he's talking about a brute, that, that is just like saying animal. And I think that the words brute and beast have become degraded or become not degraded, but tainted in our modern language because we keep calling monstrous humans, brutes and beasts, we compare them to animals, but in fact, they are nearly always, well, always far worse than animals. Animals aren't moral agents, you know, so they can't be evil. Discuss. Yeah, I don't think so. Anyway, so just that comment. And then there's a little bit of foreshadowing when he mentions close to the beginning 
that he's, uh, his wife's belief that all black cats are witches in disguise. So he dismisses that and he says, I only mention that because I'm, well, I just remembered it now, but that isn't really why. That's part of the structure of the story. And then we're not very far in when he talks about the demon drink, his intemperance. And you remember the temperance movement. And as I note, my grandmother was a good Methodist temperance, my mother's mother, uh, temperance person. Poe had a bit of a problem with alcohol and had periods of drinking heavily. So, and this relates to his death. Poe's death is considered to be mysterious. What happened was he was doing a writing. He was only 40. He was doing a writing tour in, in something like September 1849. He was due to catch a ferry from Richmond, Virginia to Baltimore, Maryland. And the night before he, he took the ferry, he was known to visit a doctor where he complained of having a fever. And then he arrived in Baltimore and was next seen three days later in a tavern. And the person who saw him thought he was in an alcoholic stupor. And mysteriously, he wasn't wearing his own clothes. He was wearing a cheap suit and a straw hat. M my theory about that would be that he sold his clothes for drink. I should say that in one of my jobs, I worked in a hospital with people with uh, alcohol problems. And I still, in my current job, I would say a good about 30 to 40%, probably worse because of lockdown, have problems with alcohol. So I'm quite familiar with alcohol withdrawal and what happens. So Poe is uh, admitted to hospital and he's uh, drifting out of consciousness and he hallucinates and talks nonsense. This sounds pretty much to me like either delirium tremens which is the DTs, you know, talking about pink elephants, just used to say that as if it was a funny thing, but it's actually really, really unpleasant. And I have wandered around wards with people looking for keys of sports cars, looking for dogs that have disappeared, you know, and the problem there is we just didn't medicate them enough because what you do is you replace the alcohol with a, a less dangerous drug. We, they call it Librium, we use, the Clodes epoxide. And if you don't, the big danger is that the person will have a seizure and die. If we can control the withdrawal, we can safely do it. But if um, in the days before the discovery of these kind of medications and untreated withdrawals, people die, you know, of alcohol. It's a very dangerous drug, uh, alcohol is. And uh, the other thing that it might be that Poe's got is a thing called Wernicke-Korsakoff Wernicke syndrome, which is caused by a lack of B vitamins, particularly thiamine. And what it is is the particularly people who abuse alcohol very often have poor diet. They don't eat anything, they just drink. And also because they pee a lot, the water-soluble vitamins such as vitamin C and vitamin B, they just deplete them so they're very low in those. People think vitamins, I don't know what they think vitamins are, but vitamins are essential for healthy functioning and lack of B vitamins in particular lead to brain damage. And this is one of the syndromes, the Korsakoff's dementia is also called and people say, they say his, his death is mysterious because the doctor who saw him in the hospital said he hadn't had a drink. Well, yeah, exactly. He's withdrawing. Then there are other theories that he was assaulted and he had a head injury. Man, we don't need, this is Occam's razor, we don't need to, unless there's evidence that I'm not aware of for this, and there may be, I don't think we need to imagine an assault. Uh, and then people talk about he may have had syphilis. Well, syphilis, again, before antibiotics, the third stage of syphilis puts people in psychiatric hospitals. They were filled, the asylums were filled with people who had what they called general paralysis of the insane, which was the tertiary syphilis, which basically rotted their brains. But this was so common that the doctor, and it's a chronic, you know, 
once it establishes itself, it, it goes on for a bit. Um, so this is a this is a, a condition that the doctors of the time would have been very familiar with. And just as we continue on the macabre, people alcoholics in withdrawal die of seizures, and the second most common sudden way the liver failure tends to take place over a longer period is catastrophic hemorrhage from the veins in the throat, which because of the liver damage, the the pressure backs up because the blood struggles to get through the liver because it's so scarred and, and, it, and it backs up in the portal vein and um, these can suddenly burst leading to a catastrophic death, a very unpleasant death, uh, particularly for people who find it and sadly this happens still. In, in, I can think of two deaths like that in my own practice in the past month. So don't don't mess with alcohol, it's dangerous. Use it in moderation. I, I mean, I have a moderate drink but you know, you've got to be careful. Anyway, back to the story. You didn't know you were going to get a medical interlude there, did you? The story itself. I don't know if you ever saw a film called The Seven Psychopaths where they, they capture a dog. And uh, I, I know from my own experience, I did a story called The Haunting. It's one of my collections, actually. And the, the pet dog, the lovely pet dog, gets killed by the monster. And people hated that. They once start that. And in Seven Psychopaths, they say the thing you can't do in Hollywood is kill a pet. And so here's Poe. And he, and, he, and he tortures the pet first. So this, again, in, in modern writing, you know, you've got to have a character whom the audience is rooting for, at least can get behind. You don't have to necessarily like them or approve of them, think of Dexter, but you do have to, the audience has to be able to go along with the character and not just shut the book or walk out of the film. And Poe's pushing it here. I think he's deliberately, I mean, there are some fairly horrific scenes, the cat cat being hung, the cat having its eye cut out. I mean, come on. Don't be shocked by me saying this. If you've listened to the story, don't be shocked by this, you know, because that's where it's introduced. And the poor the poor wife being walled up and then her body being found all gory and rotted. So yeah, Poe kills an animal and that, and I don't know what you think, but I didn't like this guy. And the other interesting thing is he, he gets the new cat and the cat phones on him and he dislikes it. Now, I'm, I am a cat lover. I'm a dog lover. I'm a rabbit lover. I'm an everything chicken lover, like them all. Rats, I'm not too bad. I mean, I don't like their tails very much, but they can be quite nice. So anyway, yeah, cats go to people who don't like them. I've seen it. They go and sit on them. And I was talking to a girl once who said, I said, well, why don't you like cats? And she said she didn't like the feel of their bones and their life. There was something about a living, I don't know. I don't know if that was her or that's common to cat, cat haters. In the story, he hangs the poor cat. And then, in retribution, and this is important, in retribution, the house catches fire and he's made destitute. Uh, and um, the, the, this is this image of the cat, the hanging cat. And his explanation is, somebody outside saw the flames, cut the cat down and threw it, the cat with its rope, uh, into the window, which hit the back of the wall behind him. And because the plaster was, uh, I think, newly laid, the image of the cat, gigantic image, Nah, he, he seems convinced by that. I think that's implausible. I think it's a supernatural fact, which is probably what he wanted us to think. So then we come to the, where he's really revealed that he kills his wife in a rage and shows not the slightest bit of remorse. In fact, he says that night, because the cat disappeared, because it was frightened of him, he slept really well, even though he just murdered his wife. And he doesn't show any sorrow or remorse. This lovely, good-natured woman that he's painted a picture of, he doesn't show any remorse. 
he basically thinks of a load of ingenious ways, all of which have uh, appeared in, in movies later, I think, and TV series, of disposing of the corpse. Wow. Total psychopath. No remorse at all. Now, an interesting thing here is we can, we can uh, psychoanalyze this. He gives himself away, doesn't he? He's erratic behavior when the police call. Otherwise, he would have got away with it, but he can't help himself carrying on and talking about why would you suddenly say to the coppers, why would you suddenly say, this is a well-constructed house, and then hit the wall where you've buried your dead wife with your stick, which sets the cat off? And he then blames the cat for sending him to the gallows. And he also blames the cat for seducing him into killing his wife. This is nonsense. Before going back to the psychoanalysis, he talked about the caterwauling, you know, that awful sound. So I had some beloved cats and... Uh, one of mine was a big fighter, and he was a lovely, gentle tomcat, but he would always fight other cats. I don't know why. He would make this awful sound, really terrible. So Poe describes that awful caterwauling very well. So jumping back to the psychoanalysis. So this is a guy, and I come across people like this all the time. You, you must understand in my work, my job is to formulate people, to work out what is going on, why they have this distress, what it's coming from. And my conclusion is there are only there are a handful of patterns in people. We, 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 we repeat ourselves, and it's generally not mysterious. So in this case, this guy is awful, and he can take no responsibility at all. All the responsibility for his life, he exports it to somebody else, the cat. You know, at least he doesn't blame his wife, the circumstances, but the cat gets it, you know. All of his misfortunes are blamed on the cat, when in fact they're clearly his fault, but he can't tolerate that. So the theory about that is that it's too painful for the person to own. They already despise themselves, and, but they, like narcissists, they keep it as a shell. They cannot tolerate that criticism, so all criticism has to be pushed out because it's too intolerable for it to be hinted at them because that proves what they really believe about themselves, that they are worthless and they just can't bear that. And if that is ever shattered, then they become really desperate and suicidal. But very often, it, you know, mostly with narcissists and psychopaths, it, it is not, never shattered. They just can't accept that, any responsibility for their own evil. And that ties in with what Jung said, you know, that um, what we do not bring forth will uh, appear outside as fate. And so, yeah, the cat is the fate. So in, in a sense, the cat is his conscience. Uh, it, it dobs him in. It gets him because it is the conscience, the black cat, that he cannot have in, internally, so it's an external conscience. That's what I think anyway. In effect, the story, is a, is a, with all that said, is a very conventional ghost story, horror story. Murder will out. It's like Macbeth, isn't it? Murder will out and the evil will be punished. And that's it. That's, that's what the function of stories is to tell us how we should behave. That's the only function of stories, as far as I can tell. And we like to know, we keep having to be reassured all the time how we should behave, how we should behave. And this is, this is that, you know, um, we mustn't do evil or we will be punished, even if we won't take responsibility for it. No matter how, we, how much we try to evade detection, how much we use our reason, the order of nature will punish us in the end. So there you go. So there we are. That's what I think this story is about. 
Thank you very much. So the music at the beginning and the end is by the Hartwood Institute. There's a link. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do it in a load of ways. You can sign up to Patreon. You can sign up to the Substack newsletter. There's a free version of the Substack. Most people are on that. Yeah, that's fine. And there's an exclusive. I'm doing Dracula at the moment. There are other exclusive stories. You get the exclusives on Patreon as well. There is no free Patreon. Yeah, you, if you just want to give me a coffee, you can do it through uh, Ko-fi. So I think it's uh, ko-fi forward slash Tony Walker, no dots. Okay, you can do that. And that would be gratefully received. Or you could buy one of my books. How about that? There's a link in the show notes. I've just brought out Haunted Castles, which, yeah, they're all stories about castles with supernatural things going on. The novellas, really, apart from the first one, four stories, one short story, two long short stories and one novella. And they're to do with uh, really men and women, I think. Mm. Okay, I think that's about it. Oh yeah, my YouTube channel's kind of exploded. I've no idea why, but I'm not complaining. It's all good. If you would, if you know anybody who would like this, you don't have to like them. You could hate them, but if you know anybody who would like this podcast, please spread the word. Listen. The other thing, the final thing to say is, times are tough. This has been a really going on a year and a half now of really toughness for a lot of people. So the fact that you'll enjoy it and you'll like it is enough of a reward for me. Okay. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye.